Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham. I'm joined, as always, by Ian Clary and by someone else, uh, Gavin Ortland. He's a author and a pastor and a father of five. And we're hoping to be able to talk to you, Gavin, a little bit about uh, Augustine, because Ian and I just finished, as we noted, um, talking through the Confessions of Augustine, so all 13 books in our podcast series. And at least I felt that the ending of the Confessions, there were certain parts that were just hard to wrap my mind around. So we thought we'd spend a week or two after this to kind of like <laughs> keep thinking about it and maybe we'll be uh we'll crawl to some sort of basic conclusion. One of the things that's interesting about Augustine here uh which is as interesting as any of the, any of the other fathers is that like they all seem really interested in uh the creation account. So on my shelf I have like Basel's uh, Hexamer Hexamer oh, I always forget to pronounce this. On the 6 days Hexameron. of creation. Hexameron. Thank you, professor. And uh Church fathers regularly are going back to the creation accounts, and it, I think Augustine has like two or three attempts at commenting on Genesis. So it's obviously something that's really important in his life. Uh, you wrote a book that talks about Augustine and creation. So why does he like it so much? The yeah, creation it, is, it, it is fun to trace out his thought because he changes his mind so much. I've all I've said this to people that you know, if nothing else you learn from Augustine on creation, it just gives you a little breathing room <laughs> to change your mind. Yeah, right. Because you know, he he does write five commentaries on Genesis throughout his life, if you include the sections in Confessions and City of God, which are sizable on Genesis. And he will come to different views on some questions, you know, five different views uh in each of the books on certain things. So it is kind of interesting. But um yeah, I mean, he he's fascinated. There, the I start off one of the chapters with a quote from him where he's basically saying, like, I'm, I if Moses were alive, I would run to him and and beg him to tell me what does this mean, <laughs> because he's he's kind of emotionally engaged with creation, and that's so interesting. That's kind of one of the things that drew me in is to say, why is this affecting him so emotionally? But I think you know, just two two. Uh, answers to that to, to get us going. One is his own story is so huge because a hang up for him, it's so similar to so many people today, was an overly literalistic account of Genesis 1 and the Bible more generally was a hang up for him in becoming a Christian when he was a Manichaean. I mean, the 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 uh, the details would be different from us today in our context, but that same struggle, you know, and it was actually through Ambrose preaching allegorically in Genesis 1, he comes to see, oh, there's other ways to read this passage, and it just opens things up for him. And I just find that amazing, because that's such a common story today, that people have hang-ups because they think there's only one way to read this text, and uh, then then they see, oh, there, there's more options. And to to see that in the, in the greatest church father, potentially, is kind of amazing that that story is not just with people today, it's, you know, with Augustine. And then what we'll talk about, too, probably is just creation continues to be important for him in his overall theology. And it's just amazing to me the way he's got this idea of creatures as having this built-in sort of imperfection. They're sort of tilted towards God, but they're not there yet. And they're sort of awaiting their confirmation. So even apart from sin, creation as a category has this kind of imp this imperfection to it. And that and so that's so that plays out in all kinds of ways in his theology, which is I just find that fascinating. Hmm. So like, do you, like Wyatt and I have talked about this, you know, right through the podcast, you know, uh, in terms of just the overall kind of coherency of confessions, 
Um, you know, you read the first nine books, that's kind of standard fare for, you know, your average Christian, if they're going to pick it up and then they get to like books 10 through 13. And it's just like, what the heck is going on here? And, and that, and that creation really does have this kind of like key theme to those latter books. And in yours, uh, in, in your book, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, you note like you kind of go through some various interpretations that people have of confessions and how, how coherent is it? Does it really hang together? Some have even argued that like, Augustine just doesn't know how to put a book together. <laughs> and, and it's like, are you really like somebody really thinks that about one of the greatest minds in history that he doesn't know how to basically put it to put together like one of the most important books in history. Can so I just how, jump in I, before that? Oh, no, no, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I won't. Sorry. I'll just say it's funny that you see this in biblical scholarship a lot of times too, where they'll read like a book in the Old Testament or whatever, the New Testament. They're like, obviously, John had no idea what he was talking about. The book doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and uh, anyway, really funny no i mean it's, it's absolutely true so um so how like so you're arguing in your book that like no there actually is an internal coherence here um so like what what do you see how do you see those latter books relating to the first nine and and how it draws the whole thing together yeah it is amazing how many people lay that charge at his feet and it's just kind of like um because confessions is such a rich book. I mean, I think you mentioned Ian just a second ago, just going through it again, you see more in it. And I feel like it's that kind of book intellectually, spiritually, and in terms of its literary qualities at all three levels, the theological, the spiritual, and uh, the literary. It's just this profound book. For me, I would say it does have coherence. It does hang together. And I locate that in the motif of rest. So, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning of the book, very beginning, the most famous quote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Okay. We all have heard this quote. There's worship songs using this quote. It's such a great, you know, I love that quote. Um, but uh, so then you get to the end of the book and and where people think Augustine's just gone off the rails. I think that actually is the key. He's going from the personal to the cosmic with this motif of rest, that just as the human heart only finds its rest in God, so all of creation does. And so this is why he's he's focusing so much on Genesis 1, where you have God's rest at the end of the creation week, and he spends a lot of time teasing that out. And as I read him, the basic idea is kind of what I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, he has this idea that I think one of the scholars calls it a conversion torque. So you could think of this, so all creatures and creation as a whole has this built-in um, kind of tilt towards God. Uh, it's it's like God uh, made us, uh, I think I use the the metaphor of like a, a pottery. Yes, you, know, you do, that, the potter, yep. Yeah, where it, it's been, but it hasn't, I can't even remember the terms I use, but it hasn't been glazed or it hasn't been finalized. It hasn't been cemented in its final usable state, but it's been constructed. And that's like creation. It's God, when God made the world, he actually didn't make it perfect yet. He made it good, but not perfect. And yeah. that kind of blows our minds a little bit, I think, but but it's such a cool idea to think it's like all of creation is kind of has this um, instable, unstable uh, it's in flux. It's awaiting this kind of final uh, permanence and confirmation it will receive in redemption one day. And I just, you know, it, it, obviously that then plays out in your doctrine of sin, in your doctrine of redemption. So the idea of deification or being made like God. But I, uh, it's just a fascinating idea. And it, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for problem of evil type questions 
and, and and other theological questions. So, but I think that idea of rest is what's going on there that makes it a coherent book. I, yeah, I'm just kind of. You can ask the uh, next question, but I'm just sort of reflecting. I'm, I'm drawn to thinking of the, the narratives of Hebrews. So Hebrews 4, that arrest, setting Psalm 95, chapters 11, 12, and 13. You know, we're looking for a city whose founder and maker is God. Mm-hmm. And it's an eternal city. Uh, uh, we don't have a, you know, our, our city, you know, we're pilgrims here and we're looking for the city that is to come. All that kind of language sort of makes me think a little bit about this idea of creation not being perfected yet. Uh, because the city to come would be maybe the full expression of it in that metaphor that Hebrews is using. And maybe Augustine in his his book. Sorry, but you go ahead, Ian. No, I was just going to affirm like the uh, it's on page 22 of your book where you talk about the the Potter analogy, pottery analogy. And yeah, that's exactly the language you use. You say only the artisan can complete it. Uh, the pottery cannot fire and glaze itself. So our world has no rest in itself. And then you go on and talk about how uh, there's like then this kind of like creaturely unsettledness that's inherent within everything. And I think we feel that we feel that existentially, right? Like that it's like, you know, this world is not our home kind of feel to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the existential push behind confessions is that that's why it resonates with us in such Uh, a way. Totally. And, And what helped me so much is that it's not just the result of sin. Sin furthers the problem, but actually, even just by the status of created, but not yet in that final state, there's still this sense of you're looking ahead. And it really is interesting. I mean, the other, uh, piece of literature that comes to my mind that kind of relates to this idea is the book Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because there's this woman that this, that ransom, the character is talking to, and she's good. She's not fallen. It's, you know, it, her world has not yet been marred by sin. She's not a sinful person at all, but she's very much in development and growth. And just this idea that to be a creature is a dynamic category, not a static category. Even apart from sin, there's this development that right. that's really interesting. And like I say, I just, it opens up lots of possibilities. It's kind of like Tom Bombadil a little bit too, right? Like Tom Bombadil in Lord of the Rings can put the ring on his finger and nothing happened because it's like he's living in a prelapsarian state, you know, uh, which is really, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, I got now we broke questions. Augustine and C.S. Yeah. Lewis and Tolkien all together. So <laughs> yeah. I actually owe that insight perfect. to my wife. My wife's just been rereading Lord of the Rings and she's like blown away by Tom Bombadil. She's like, how come he can put the ring on, you know? And I'm like, oh, it's a cool thought. So. Uh, I mean, I could go on, man. Like, why? What else you got? Because I got a billion questions. Well, at the <laughs> beginning, you mentioned um, Ambrose. I yeah. named my son, one of my sons, after him. Mm. Uh, one just because I like the name, but I, I find Ambrose Milan to be a pretty key character. I also was not allowed to name my son Augustine, so that's yeah. part of the real problem there. <laughs> um, but you, Augustine is listening as a Manichaean to Ambrose, or as a whatever stage he was in at that point and he does hear what we call an allegorical exegesis of the old testament and that sort of opens his eyes you think it's almost like paul's scale moment where that the scales come off after three days which is which is a suspicious amount of days for paul uh to have and then he can see things clearly and truly so if augustine approaches um scripture at times in ways that we would describe as allegorical like what does that mean and is that okay for us to do today Mm -hmm. yeah i I have i have a section on this in the book and this is that this does get very tricky i mean it's easy to get into the church fathers and their uh 
treatment of allegory and the literal sense and just feel like it's complete chaos. And it's like, but th- what I'm arguing in the book is there really are guardrails. There really are principles for how they're exegeting the scripture very carefully. Um, one thing that helps is, so Augustine will have his allegorical interpretation of Genesis and then his literal. So he has an allegorical first, then he writes a literal commentary. One thing that's helpful to see is these are not necessarily contradictory. He doesn't, he sees these two levels of meaning as overlapping a lot. And even in his literal commentary, he'll use lots of allegorical interpretation. So they're not necessarily in competition with each other. I think one of the keys is that they don't base doctrine on the allegorical sense. So this is where we will also want to be careful today is the, the principle is the allegorical illumines the text but they're not basing doctrine on it. And he also sees the allegorical as kind of enfolded into the literal. So um, it is it is really complicated, but I, I don't want people to feel as though Augustine is just being chaotic in his, because I mean, he does have some really weird ideas, like in his allegorical interpretation of Genesis. I mean, he's making these connections between like this particular creature God made and like, the the loveliness of the human soul or something i mean it's just like where do you get you know but to, to understand that these are not he's he actually isn't making a claim about the author's intent when he does that this is a kind of spiritual exercise he's not actually it, it he's not saying more than than um then you might you know you don't have to take it as he thinks that that's what the text was talking about so that can help. And he does, I have a section in the book where I'm just arguing he does care about authorial meaning, and he is working hard to understand the literal sense of the text. The spiritual kind of comes out of that for a spiritual purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. you describe it on, on page 113 of your book as a journey, and that, like from the allegorical to the literal, right? So it is, and that journey takes that kind of work, and it takes that sort of thought. And and I, li- I like what what was helpful about that right is that it it does draw you in terms of like it being an intellectual exercise he actually says that at certain points in the confessions right like let's do a thought experiment here is what he's basically asking us to do and i've i've wondered this and i don't know you if you thought about it but he has such a problem with the bible from being young and you know he becomes a manichae he thinks the bible is like this kind of vulgar barbaric, barbaric book and it's not until he's, you know, hearing Ambrose preach, like you give the date at 384, where Ambrose is preaching allegorically. Do you think it's like there's a sense where, and I'm using anachronistic terms here, but there's a kind of biblicism maybe in the way that he's being raised up on the Bible and he's not actually sure how to read it right. And that in a sense that the allegorical reading is actually what then makes him see that, oh, this book is not barbaric. It's actually really deep. Because it seems like he's looking for this kind of weird depth when he's in his Manichaean phase, right? And he can, and and then like the Neoplatonists kind of save him a little bit, but then he hears this Bible being preached in an allegorical way. I don't know. Am I off on that, or does that seem likely? Or no, I think that is right on. In fact, he has statements. Uh, it's kind of amazing. He's saying the the literal sense was death to me, <laughs> and then I learned to read the Bible in a spiritual sense, and it became life, and it became sweetness to my heart, and so forth. And what he means by that is not that the literal is bad, but but in that context, he is talking about an overly kind of literalistic reading that isn't what the original author actually meant. And he, yeah, he that 
you know, that hung him up. And that's why his story is so poignant for modern readers, I think. How many people grow up thinking that there's just this one way you have to read the Bible in general or this one particular passage, and it's very literalistic, and that is a struggle for them. And then in understanding, the text is actually more nuanced, and actually faithful Christians have read it differently, and that can be like oxygen to them. It's just it's just cool that Augustine himself went through that process. And I think it, you do a lot of that work on your YouTube channel, Truth Unites. Like, a, from what I've seen, you talk with a lot of different people and are kind of showing um, different approaches to scripture that are faithful and good, but are not necessarily tied down to one exact shape of communication. Uh, I find that really interesting. I think allegory is fascinating. I mean, obviously, Paul says he does allegory in Galatians. But one of the things that you th- said is really important, it might be just worth repeating because some people might hear this and are unused to the language, is that even someone like Aquinas will say Christian dogma is based on the letter. Hmm. Um, Allegory is something like an ornament. Hmm. But allegory is often, depending on who you're reading, it's almost identical to what we might call the Christological sense today in evangelical circles. Or redemptive historical. Or redemptive historical. It's not like, because sometimes you hear the stereotype of allegory is just like, you know, someone just makes up something kind of goofy. But a lot of times it's what is the true structure of reality, the world, and what is the direction that the Bible moves? And then allegory is a reflection on the basis of both of those things mm-hmm. based on providence, how the world is metaphysics, and also the shape and scope of scripture or the scopus of scripture. And so it's, it, it ends up being tied to, I would say, like a triangle of realities. Um, where I know I just wanted to kind of repeat that because I think some people who are unused to language might think, why are they talking about people like <laughs> just making up random things about the Bible, which I don't I really don't even think origin does that, to be honest. I think it's it's kind of a made up critique that maybe is maybe occasionally has had, you know, is appropriate, but very rarely is that an accurate an accurate representation of any historical theologian that I'm aware of. It, yeah. it also seems right, like this is spiritual, like this is a spiritual way to read that's grounded in contemplation, right? Like that's why, like, because the literal sense is very, you can be very scientific and you don't have to contemplate what you're doing. And so that's why a non-believer can exegete a passage of scripture. You know, you get biblical study scholars at SBL or AAR who can, you know, do all this kind of stuff. But like, it's it's really, it's the Christian discipline of reading scripture that's spiritual, that the allegory. It's why book 13, I think, hit me at such a, it was not at an intellectual level. I felt like I was being hit at, per se. I was, it was something deeper. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you think of that, Gavin. Yeah, no, no, I can relate to that. And, you know, just an encouragement for people listening to this. Uh, it takes a lot of patience to try to get in the mindset of some of these church fathers in their way they're engaging scripture. And it can seem really, jar- it's kind of like a going to a different culture. And it takes a while to understand kind of what's going on. But just to encourage people not to reject it or um, dismiss it when it feels really foreign, there is a lot of carefulness and 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 uh, reflectiveness in how the fathers are approaching scripture. And for example, like the the rule of faith constrains them in their right. interpretations. So this is it's not this freewheeling approach. So just to encourage people to really take time to try to, because it is worth that discipline of trying to see the world through their eyes. It is an enriching experience, even if you wouldn't necessarily agree on every particular. Absolutely. So what do you think? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, Gavin, what's the rule of faith? And then (laughs) 
Yeah. So basically, the faith. It's <laughs> sorry. Okay. Think, think for, think of, uh, you know, like the Apostles' Creed, and think yeah. that you're you're being constrained in how you read the Scripture by this framework. Yeah, yeah, we get it from Irenaeus, and it kind of it's it's setting guardrails for us for sure. What do you, what what is what do you make of instantaneous creation? So he's very famous for giving us this doctrine. As far as I understand, he's grounding it in something like Genesis two four in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, right? Um, and and then that's going to have a pretty dominant effect on like later interpretations throughout the Middle Ages on how to read Genesis one. What like what what is that? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because you know today the idea that many have is that the creation account is too short and it actually happened over much longer. And people look at the Bible and say, but for Augustine, it was the exact opposite. He's saying, how could it possibly have taken six whole days, you know, or seven days? And uh, he he thought it kind of was more fitting with God's power that it should just be an instant like that. The thing that I think is worth reflecting on about that is just that there are textual reasons why he gets to that view. And you mentioned one with Genesis 2, 4. There's others as well. The the classic light before luminaries conundrum. How Where's the light coming from before? Day one, have... day four. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then God resting. He's saying, this is not, he really agonizes over that. How is God resting? You know, what does that mean? And uh, so the, the thing that's interesting about that is that for those who will be very impatient with us for interpreting Genesis 1, not in a literalistic way as 24-hour consecutive periods of time and say, it, the text is obvious. You guys are just totally compromising by, by being open to reading it any other way than that. It's just so clear. It's so obvious. Well, it is helpful to enlist Augustine's voice in the conversation to say, way before any of the pressures of modern science, uh, people looked at this text and didn't see it as super simple. Mm. They didn't see it as just obvious. There are features of the text itself that generate some of these complexities so that even if you don't agree with Augustine's conclusion, it can help us appreciate some of the the complexity of what we're dealing with in the text. Which probably explains why so many church fathers wrote these giant books on the creation account. Because mm -hmm. it's not just you know just one, two, three straightforward per se. But I, so in the in the context that I grew up in my sort of Christian faith, I, I frequently encountered people trying to read Genesis and, and overlap on top of it some sort of scientific schema. So you would have uh, water must have come up and created some canop canopy over the, the earth. And that's why people live for so long because they didn't have radiation over them anymore. And just all these kinds of things over and over. But it kind of strikes me that Augustine, because he's a part of a different era, almost frees you up from feeling that, that that's necessary. Because if he, if it never came to mind that he had to create the scientific paradigm, over top of Genesis, why do we think that, that maybe we have to? Um, I remember even people talking about, like, I think it's the firmament is, is, is also this canopy of water that floats into the air, and, and that's where the flood comes from. Like, all these, like, maybe interesting speculations on putative science that's hypothetically possible, but weird if you think that's the meaning of the text, at least from my point of view. Maybe someone listening will say it's, it's very reasonable. I don't, I don't know. But he is almost freeing us from this 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 feeling of necessity that we need to create some sort of scientific structure to genesis maybe mm -hmm. am i speaking wrongly here or is, is that helpful do you think to read no, it that, that that's helpful and i mean what what i want to say about this that has been helpful for me personally is just 
that Augustine is so patient at these whole questions of harmonizing science and scripture, theology, and what we learn from the, the natural world. Um, he didn't call them scientists, but there are people who are studying like the phases of the moon mm -hmm. and other geological questions in Augustine's day. I talk about this in chapter two. What astonished me is how respectful Augustine is to those disciplines. There he really does respect what we call science. And he's, I mean, he he is trying to harmonize the text of scripture with science. And he's willing to change his interpretations at points if he's not sure of the interpretation. And if the science is really sound science, he's willing to say, okay, then we should revisit the interpretation. He, In other words, he's not dismissive. He's not saying like, well, the Bible is the word of God, therefore just read it and that's all that matters. He's very respectful in his engagement with the natural sciences. Hmm. It's helpful. So you've written this book. It's got the word retrieval in it, right? Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. You wrote another book that I found really helpful, and we've actually used it at CCU where I teach, uh, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. Um, so, and retrieval is this kind of like buzzword today, right? Like, so you've done this, you're doing this, you're bringing Augustinian thought, Augustine himself into a discussion that, you know, I, I know that you personally engage with, with the biologos guys, with the reasons to believe guys. So you're saying, okay, he has something here to tell us that we could retrieve that we could use for today. Mm -hmm. So you take obvious, you're, you're seeing a real benefit to retrieval. And so I'd love, I'd love for you to explain how you see that. And then also at the same time, um, as we're historians, we also know that we can be sort of we could, there's the temptation for seeing golden ages that aren't there in the past. So what could be like pitfalls uh, to this whole idea of retrieval that like we don't want to get imbalanced with as we get into these like buzzword discussions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, I I have uh, just myself been so enriched by engaging these old theologians. So I'm obviously very sympathetic to the task of theological retrieval. But to your question, I do have some worries about how it can go awry in, in various ways. I think to, to state just two of the benefits of it, one of them is that um, the, the fact is that we are traditioned creatures no matter what. Uh, the only difference is whether we are aware of how our traditions are affecting us, the extent to which we're aware of that. But, you know, even the most uh, low church, anti-traditional church is inheriting so much that will be its own sort of traditions. And so to me, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, the only alternative to doing theological retrieval in a self-conscious way is just to be influenced by the past and not even be aware of it. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like Preach. we're going to break free from the past and how it influences us. So we might as well do it responsibly and, and self-consciously, you know. Um, the other thing is, it's going back to the metaphor of cultural travel, going to a different culture, to go to the past is like that. It's really helpful for inducing humility to check yourself, to say, why am I looking at things this way? We have a lot of uh, blind spots in the modern West. And one of the great things about theological retrieval is if you're retrieving pre-modern theologians, especially, it just, or honestly, even if you're like just going back to like Bavink or someone more recently like this, it really will challenge you. And, and you'll be saying, wow, I never would have had that question. And it's just helpful. Uh, it's just like having a conversation. It's like when you're thinking by yourself and you're just meditating, that's one way of thought. But when you're having a conversation with someone else, that's another. And if the person that you're talking with is really different from you, 
that is so profoundly helpful because it can teach you to see things you couldn't see. That's like what Anselm has been like for me. The, the question of the modern age is, all, is often, how could a loving God send people to hell? I, I'll never forget when it just washed over me that Anselm didn't have just a different answer to that question. He had a different question altogether. In his context, the question he wrote a whole book on is how can God forgive? Mm. And that is so interesting to not necessarily that the past is always right and we're always wrong, but it just challenges these assumptions that are baked into us in the modern West that we're not even aware we have sometimes. And and so the past can just challenge us in those ways. So there's, you know, I, I could go on that about the benefits because I, I really think retrieval is a wonderful thing. But I, I, to your question about the downsides, there are some real perils. I, I, in chapter three of that book you mentioned, I go through four of the dangers. One of them, I think I call it repristination, where it's this idea that like, if you just go back to Thomas Aquinas or whoever, and just repeat what they said, right, <laughs> and just like wave a wand over it, it's like, aha, this is like the final verdict, which is needs to be just unedited and plunked down. And that's the answer. That's one of the dangers that I, I do think that happens. There are new challenges we face today that require us to appropriate the insights of the past to, to address them. And it is possible to kind of skate over the challenges too, too glibly. Um, and there's also just a lot of triumphalism. You know, the, the past is a very powerful um, very powerful thing. Once you start really getting into the tradition it's easy. It's kind of like a lot of my friends who convert to a non-Protestant tradition it's, or, or someone who becomes a Calvinist for like the first five years, <laughs> you have to be very wary around this person because they can be very triumphalist, you know, retrieval can become very triumphalist, very much like, ah, but did you know the church fathers said this? And it's like the answer to everything. And there's all kinds of ways it can kind of go in unhelpful directions. I think we need to be careful of. I'm curious what you guys would say about that too, though. I'll say one thing that maybe adds to what you said. Um, one thing that I'm really concerned about is if you repeat the conclusions of the tradition, but you don't know how the, they argued to those conclusions, you miss the contemplation involved in theological reflection. The reason why Aquinas is so beautiful to read, for example, is because you see a rational mind moving upward to God through contemplation. And it's that movement that you can repeat in yourself. You might argue against or for, like, that's not the point. I mean, you probably will argue against him on a lot of things, but that's so freeing. But a lot of times you almost see people asserting the conclusion, not knowing the argument. And then to what you were saying, Gavin, it feels very triumphalistic, but you lose like, like what Ian was talking about in book 13, just like the joy of discovery, the joy of contemplation. I mean, faith in God, which hope makes present, is infused by love. And that is like, it just, maybe the simplest way to put it is, it just makes you a better person. <laughs> and if we miss that, if we just merely repeat conclusions to dogmatic reflection on the meaning of scripture and the created order. What do you think, Ian? Yeah, I mean, kind of riffing off that a little bit too. Um, I, I I feel like though, because what you're saying is we need to do work. Um, and it shouldn't come easy to us. And I think that a lot of times what's happening, especially when you see a lot of the Twitter debates, 
is that people, well, then that's kind of where it's played out a lot. And um, I feel true. like, well, yeah, for sure. It's like, where a lot of people are doing is they're kind of secondhanding, right? So they read what their favorite modern theologian today is saying about what so-and-so of the past said without doing the work. And then it's like, I've got it down now. I understand. And anybody who disagrees is, you know, out of line here. And when you look at certain people who are doing really deep work in the in, in some of these great thinkers of the past, they're seeing things that, you know, that you don't see if you're just merely secondhanding. And and then when they come out with things, we might get freaked out by them because we've got these we've got these set categories in our minds now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what I'm thinking of is like, OK, we retrieved the so-called five points of Calvinism back when the Banner of Truth starts publishing books and R.C. Sproul's writing. And then when people start talking about reform scholasticism, everybody's freaking out, like, well, that's Catholic, you know? But it's like, okay, well, those guys, Richard Muller did the work. And if you do the work too, you'd see it. And then I feel like we're getting to another kind of, almost a repeat of it kind of further down the line where we're doing the Thomas Aquinas stuff. But now we got Thomas down, simplicity or impassibility. But there's a lot more work to do, and we can't just rest at the second-handing stage. We actually really need to wrestle with these people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think that's an important observation. I, you, you and I both saw that article by Ryan Hurd recently. That's who I was thinking of. I was and, thinking I was yeah. actually just zooming with Ryan today. That's what made me think of it. <laughs> well, it it may, it unlocks something. So for years, whenever I read the Church Fathers, and they're talking about impassibility, it's essentially God's not Zeus. Yeah. No body, right? And, and I never get the sense, or rarely get the sense, that God is affectionless or whatever, passion. It, it's, it was always really, and then I would hear these kinds of arguments, and then yeah, you're, I read the scholastics, and I didn't um, see see that very clearly. But I was like, well, I'm not an expert in this area. Probably I'm just missing something, you know, or whatever. But then Ryan kind of helped me. He's like, no, no, the scholastics are saying the same thing as the fathers. Yeah. There ever so that was just one of those eye-opening moments where I was like, I should be confident in what because I just never saw this idea that impassibility meant that God has no emotional life. It just yeah. made, it didn't follow. But anyways, that's a side conversation. Sorry. <laughs> but listen, well, we, but, oh, God's gonna say, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask Gavin one last thing. Uh, one uh, that might be a, a bit of a longer talk before he has to go. But and maybe, let me say one thing before okay, yeah. you get to that question. Sure. That's okay. Just just following on what you guys are saying with the dangers. I thought of one other that might be helpful just to mention briefly, and that's this. Uh, when we do retrieval in a way where we're just quote mining mm. for a contemporary agenda, it's like, and we're not reading them the historical source in its own context. And so this is a real danger. And so um, I think one good mark of a successful retrieval effort is to, if we are being sort of uh, um, knocked off balance a little bit by it and are, and maybe changed in the process, and maybe there's if there's a little bit of dissonance along the way that we're having to yeah. struggle through, it, it, that's a good indicator we're doing it better. If we're that's just going it for padding and for armor for our agenda, that's a real danger. That's, mm. I love that. I'm so glad you said that. No, that's and it reminds me of what kind of Bradford's saying right now too. Um, mm. You mentioned friends converting outside of Protestantism. In my country, one of the interesting things is and if probably even by now, but at least in a few years, we're going to have more Orthodox Christians than Baptists. Not just your country, by the way. It's my country too, man. Well, <laughs> who's to say? You don't even live in this country anymore. Now, there's other, there's going to be more Protestants here because that doesn't, Baptists don't equal Protestants. But 
it is interesting that there are a set of people, at least not everyone, who are going towards what I would might call more high church experience or more traditional or more what feels more rooted in history. Maybe it's a way to, I don't know if it actually is, but it feels that way. So Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy, whichever one that is. Um, why? And like, it's sort of connected to the Augustine conversation, but we meant you talked about it a little bit. Why, why do you think people are, are doing this? Like what makes them move from being Protestant to feeling like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox Orthodoxy is more ancient and somehow more superior for that reason. Like what's, what's going on? Mm -hmm. It is happening a ton. And I actually am kind of content to not even speculate too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we can obviously identify just from some of the things we've already said. I mean, the current disillusionment in many evangelical contexts, whether because of political realities right now, whether because of the shallowness of some evangelical practice and the pragmatism. Um, I think a lot of people feel very lost right now. And just in, in general, you know, there's a lot of disenchantment. There's a lot of despair. There's a lot of a feeling of uh, looseness. You know, uh, there's a lot of disintegration. A lot of people are like looking for something solid. It's like the world feels very slippery, you know? And so I think in that I can completely understand this general uh, push toward retrieval, toward what is ancient and what feels uh, more solid. But when it comes to particular conversions, I always try to simply not feel like I need to have a final verdict on it because I know some people might feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable with me, you know, making a judge because I don't know their heart and I don't know their motive. But um, but I would just observe that it is very common and it's a big thing. And I, my whole, I mean, this has become a big part of my life these days. I, I got onto YouTube, didn't think it would be a huge thing. I found it so much fun and I've made so many friends on there that, uh, you know, I've just, I just find myself really enjoying it. So I'm on there a lot. And in that context, what I've come to see is just, I feel very um, lonely as a Protestant voice because there's not many people defending. I, I think a lot of people assume Protestantism. You know, it's like, well, we know we should be Protestant. So it's just a question of within that, what do we, you know, <laughs> but a lot of people right now are asking these questions. And that's where I'm, and I have last thing I'll say on this is just, like talking the three of us, this is like the kind of conversation I have like with other other people who are interested in theology and they're Protestants and they like reading Augustine. But I've been dismayed that the general perception of Protestants, like I have a lot of people act as though it's like, wow, you're interested in church history as a Protestant. You're like the only one I know <laughs> who's a Protestant. And I'm like, you kind of meet people like I... I <laughs> <laughs> There's so many Protestants like that. It's dismaying to me that that's not better understood. And so a lot of people, I think, just don't understand that you can actually be really historically rooted and rigorous in your uh, historical engagement as a Protestant. Well, it's like it's everybody takes Newman's quip too seriously. Is like right to like to to be Protestant is to cease to care about history or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, you've you have been very gracious with your time. And so I, I guess my last sort of question for you is more just on the personal side. And uh, how how what, what what are you working on? You've got a couple of books I see that are coming out. Um, what are what are some of just the big projects that you're interested in that we can be sort of expecting from you in the next little while? 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, uh, stemming out from my last set of comments, I am currently writing a book called uh, Why Protestantism Makes Sense, The Case for an Ever-Reforming Church. And uh, it will be a semi-academic book. It's coming up from Zondervan Reflective, which is a kind of an imprint that's between academic and popular level. So uh, hoping to help. It's the kind of book I want to give. You know, I get so many emails and Facebook messages and so forth from people who it's like my my you know my son is in college and he's converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. I don't know anything about Eastern Orthodoxy. What do I do? What you know? What should I read? What should you know? That kind of scenario, or um, you know, so not necessarily just just the that kind of relationship, but all kinds of situations like that. And so it's the kind of book I'd love to be able to give to someone who's not necessarily like a seminary professor, but they're interested in theology and they want to learn these issues. And so I go through, I have a section on Catholicity. So why Protestantism is actually the best path to Catholicity, meaning the wholeness of the church, because we do not claim and we never have to be the one true church. Almost all of the non-Protestant options, and certainly the major ones, do and historically have been very restricted with that. So I have a section on that, teasing that out. I have a section on history, responding to the Newman quote. And then I have a section on authority, which is the other major issue that I see coming up in these conversations. And man, it's amazing. As someone who thinks sola scriptura is a very sensible idea, I'm amazed at just how much people do not like sola scriptura. <laughs> and they just think of it as this obvious. The only thing they hate more than that is Calvinism. And I made the mistake <laughs> of letting people know I'm a Calvinist, even though I don't even emphasize that. And man, they every video, the comments, well, you're just a Calvinist. So therefore, <laughs> you know, and it's like, wow, I, I shouldn't have even let people know probably. <laughs> but uh, the authority thing, man, they love people just think that sola scriptura is the dumbest idea they've ever heard. And so I'm just trying to, in that section, kind of tease out what this actually means and why it's actually, it actually makes a lot of sense to say the scriptures, the infallible rule for the church. And then subordinate to that, we do have authorities, ecclesial authorities that we are submissive to, um, but they're not infallible. And why I think that system is actually the best way to go. So anyway, so that's the book. It comes out August of 2024. I really hope it helps people. I've been amazed at how much of a need there is in this area. And then uh, beyond that, I just have a few smaller things. I have a devotional book on humility uh, mm -hmm. coming out in one month from the time we record this, January of 2023. Mm -hmm. And then I have a project I'm doing on how Christianity came into Scandinavia in the medieval era. I think I mentioned this before, the the missionaries going up to the Vikings. That's just yeah. become kind of a personal interest of mine. So I'm doing some work there, hoping to, I'm kind of crafting that from my ETS presentation into a paper somewhere, hopefully to submit somewhere. Love it. That's awesome. And I'm glad you're doing that. Um, I'm excited to see how you're going to promote your book on humility, because I think a promotion on a book titled that is, is interesting. Well, it's easy for me to do. Be, it's easy for me to do. I mean, I'm, I am the most humble guy that I know. Fair. So. Well, that's real fair. <laughs> I wonder if you took the name Ortland and seen how many books that last name has published in the last 10 years, what the number Your would dynasty. be. I'm sure it's, yeah, it'd be, it'd be pretty high. Gavin, thank you so much for chatting with us. I know we are a little bit maybe not perfect in email communication. So you kind of came through at the end. I really fault. appreciate that. And it was just fun to chat kind of to build even a burgeoning friendship with you through online technology and to reminisce a bit, a bit about Augustine. So thank you, Gavin. We really appreciate it. Everybody go buy his book, Doctrine of Creation Rules. <laughs>